Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. My social impact pioneers today have come together from across industries, communities and the Atlantic Ocean to tackle a problem. That problem? How can we raise the human rights standards within supply chains across the world? Or flipped around, how can businesses better engage and support their suppliers to adhere to human rights laws, conventions and best practice? From eliminating modern slavery to ensuring no children are working in supply chains. Meet Sue Maslow, Patrick Miller and Olivia Wyndham-Stewart. Sue is the co-founder and partner of her own legal firm in the US. She is the vice chair of the working group to draft human rights protections in international supply chain contracts. And she's also the chair of the ABA Business Law Section's Corporate Social Responsibility Law Committee. Patrick is the founding attorney of Impact Advocates, focusing on international commercial dispute resolution through arbitration, mediation and litigation. Whilst Olivia is a business and human rights specialist, working across a number of organisations to embed labour rights into business, and she is based in the UK. Today, together, we are going to hear about the work that they have been collaborating on, bringing their collective expertise in contractual law, business, supply chains, and human rights to tackle this problem. Sue, Patrick, Olivia, welcome. Thank you so much, Katie. It's wonderful to be with Business Fights Poverty. We're excited. Thank you. And for everybody listening, that was Sue. And Sue, I'm going to ask you our first question today. You're all part of the Responsible Contracting Project, which is a project that has emerged from an American Bar Association working group. Can you share what this is and also why it's important to the wider world? Well, as you noted, the American Bar Association came up with model principles for buyers and suppliers, similar to company policies that you might find on a website back in 2014. Out of those principles, the business law section formed a working group which wanted to provide a contractual tool to operationalize those principles. Again, whether they were the ABA adopted ones or company policies. And the Responsible Contracting Project wanted to take that tool, those model contract clauses, and convince business communities, the general counsels and the procurement that really have often exist in silos that don't talk to each other, the thinking of human rights performance as required contractual terms can help implement those policies in a meaningful way. Cool. And we'll get into a bit more detail about how that works in a moment. But I just wanted to ask each of you in turn, actually, about how you got into this and and why it's particularly important to you. Sue, do you want to go first and then we'll invite the others to share their thoughts? 
Sure. Uh, for me, actually, it was a realization that the uh, the phrase ready, aim, fire was not utilized at all by the ABA or even corporations with respect to human rights abuses. Instead, they sort of took a, a backwards perspective, fire, aim, ready. So the human rights abuses were identified as a problem that needed fixing. And there was this effort to address it with policies or what they call soft law and aim at the bad corporations for uh, their abuses without ever analyzing whether or not the companies were even ready to really meaningful address the problem that often existed, you know, thousands of miles away in different countries that may not have even held human rights abuse as illegal activities. So there was that, and there was also the realization that commercial law contracts really were not modified in a way that could address soccer balls, for instance, that are beautiful, that are black and white and bounce appropriately and all the stitches are in place, but that are made by children. So as a practicing lawyer, after drafting contracts for over 40 years, I thought that there was a need to define goods that were tainted by forced labor or child labor as non-conforming or defective under existing provisions like the Uniform Commercial Code or what they called the CISG in Europe. Cool. And Olivia, what about yourself? Hi, Katie. Um, Thanks for having us also from me. I came into this project in 2020, so a couple of years ago now, and I come from a slightly different perspective to Sue and I guess also from Patrick um, in that I'm not a lawyer. I'm a business and human rights specialist. And I really came to this because I spent many years working um, in production countries you know, going in and out of factories, talking to suppliers, talking to manufacturing associations, and trying to really identify and remediate human rights abuses that were found on either a micro scale or a kind of macro scale. And what I found time and time again is that we were meeting these tensions with the commercial practices found in the supply chain. And I would often hear suppliers say to me, you know, my customers are asking for this, they're asking for that on a a human rights basis, that you should see these contracts, you should see these conditions under which we're trying to work. There are too many tensions in this process for us to be able to realise the things that are being asked of us. So when I was put in touch with uh, Sarah Dadouche, who is another colleague of ours on this project working at Rutgers Law School, I was really, really passionate about coming into the group and thinking about how we could bring together the different communities, the human rights practitioners, the suppliers, the the firms, the legal teams, to really kind of, you know, iron out um, some of these tensions and think about how contracts can be better designed to support better human rights outcomes in company supply chains. So I think it's essentially, I've always thought it's very important to pay attention to the legal life of the company. And this project has allowed us to come together and to do that. So uh, from my point of view, it's been a very exciting adventure. Exciting adventure and and hopefully kind of real impact to be made as well, lasting. Patrick, I wanted to bring you in too. I mean, what's what's sort of brought you to this table, so to speak? Hi, Katie. And again, thanks for having us, of course. We really appreciate the work you're doing at Business Fights Poverty. So I spent the first about 10 years of my career working at large international law firms, mainly focusing on resolving international commercial disputes, primarily through international arbitration. This was mainly working with traditional companies, 
I'd also been very much interested in kind of responsible globalization, responsible business conduct. And I'd done some advisory work for some smaller startup companies on how they might establish responsible supply chains, you know, for instance, get issues related to cobalt or issues related to forced labor. But I'd never really honed in on it until I was able to start my own firm just before the pandemic. Now, of course, that wasn't exactly the best timing to start your own entrepreneurial venture, but it did give me the opportunity to think through how I wanted my own firm to grow. And a key plank that I wanted my firm to have was to work with social businesses, impact companies, impact investments, B Corps, things of that. So that allowed me to really hone in on responsible business practices. And given my background in international commercial issues, it was kind of natural for me to gravitate towards these uh, supply chain issues, responsible supply chain issues. And so I became introduced to the working group just through researching their model contract clauses. And I reached out to the working group in uh, 2021 and was just really happy with what I saw. One thing I can say, I can say this about them, they probably wouldn't say this about themselves, but the leaders of the working group have all been focused on how they can make the most impact, how they can really help businesses implement these clauses and implement better practices, rather than, say, getting as many white papers as possible published or getting as many speaking slots as they can. They're really, they're really a, a group of pragmatic lawyers that balance their careers in business and their understanding of what's feasible in a business context with what's desirable from a stakeholder rights perspective. Um, and so I share those beliefs and those goals. So it was natural for me to uh, work with them. And then over the course of the past few years, not only has it been the responsible businesses who are the social businesses who are interested in incorporating more responsible supply chain practices, it's become a necessity for traditional companies, given the regulatory posture that's been evolving and increasing. And I think we can talk about that a bit further going forward, but um, it's just been a really interesting period. Interesting indeed. And Patrick, goodness, what a roller coaster you've had over the last few years. So we have the perfect setup here with Sue, Olivia, Patrick, you bringing each of your different lenses, I guess, to this challenge. You just talked Patrick, about the the how to implement being so important for the working group. Sue, I wanted to bring you back in at this point. Could you run us through the practical procedures? So from a business perspective, what steps should or could a company and their decision makers take as positive action towards human rights and supply chains? And, And how can the model contract clauses play a role in that journey? I'd be happy to run through that uh, for uh, our audience. I'm going to go back to the ready, aim, fire analogy. And I think that the model contract clauses set up a process where there is pre-contractual human rights due diligence in the actual selection of suppliers. So if we look at the specs for a product and we say it's got to be five inches long and it's got to be an inch wide and it's got to be made of certain materials, so too should the human rights objectives of both parties, the buyer and the supplier. So in that 
human rights due diligence selection of suppliers, the company has to ask, does my supplier have the resources to perform my human rights policies? And then once the contract is signed and these uh, suppliers are chosen, there's ongoing human rights due diligence under the model contract clauses and reporting requirements so that both parties are focused throughout the term of the relationship. Again, just as they would for other specs that address the product uh, requirements. I'm a big believer in inspect what you expect. So I'm going to repeat that because I'm not sure I, I said it clearly enough, but you must inspect what you expect. And again, that's to me, it's the same as any other product specification. It is a expectation that's very clear from the very beginning with the involvement of general counsel, the compliance and the procurement people all working together to accomplish that goal. That's what I think a business has to do to uh, see positive action towards human rights um, performance. Now, see, that makes lots of very sort of sensible sense. But I was just wondering why should a business bother to do this? Like, why should they pay attention? Patrick, bring you in. You mentioned earlier on around the sort of shift between sort of responsible and social businesses sort of thinking about this to almost mainstream or traditional companies. From your experience, how and why should businesses bother to invest in this kind of activity? Yes, thank, thanks for that question. And I think we can, especially for this audience, I think we can put aside the ethical reasons why they would want to do so. And obviously the um, reputational reasons why they might want to do so. And we can even put aside the um, approach from investors who are more and more cognizant of these issues. I just wanted to speak particularly to the regulatory issue. So I spend plenty of time speaking to social businesses who I'm where I'm preaching to the choir in a manner of speaking. But I also speak to, to traditional companies and, and lawyers who advise those traditional companies about the evolving regulatory approach that developed country governments are taking to these issues. I'm writing an article right now, which effectively says that international lawyers can be forgiven for believing that issues related to human rights and supply chains are only voluntary because for so many years, they've only been the subject of voluntary international pronouncements. But over the past few years, national governments have been creating hard law around these issues. So you have the UK Modern Slavery Act, the German Due Diligence Act, the French Duty of Vigilance. Here in, in America, which is, of course, I'm more comfortable speaking to being an American lawyer, we have the increased enforcement from U.S. Customs and Border Protection Department regarding prohibitions on forced labor. The U.S. has effectively had a ban against forced labor for nearly 100 years, but only recently has the U.S. CBP vigorously enforced that prohibition. And now you, you see that coming to a crest in the form of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which effectively prohibits goods that have a nexus to Uyghur labor or the Xinjiang region of China from importation into the U.S. And now you also see the EU has proposed a due diligence scheme whereby companies that are subject to the, that act will be required to perform human rights due diligence. They've also very recently proposed a ban on forced labor, which will also have implications for companies and how they structure their supply chains. 
so you can see that the the approach that governments are taking has become increasingly more serious in requiring companies to take steps to eliminate this from their supply chains. And I just want to say that that governments are cognizant of how feasible it is for these companies to do this. They're cognizant that no company has full control or full visibility over its supply chain, but the approach in the regulatory community is that companies need to take at least the first steps to identify and remedy the risks in their supply chain of contributing to human rights abuses. It makes so much sense. And it seems such a sort of simple sort of solution that Sue's laid out for us. Olivia, from your perspective, I mean, you've been in businesses and trying to uh, talk about that sort of human rights element and working deeply with them. It can't be that easy. Why hasn't this all been done already? What challenges are out there? And if you are, were advising somebody who's a decision maker within a business, what should they look out for to sort of, you know, smooth the path and try and make it work effectively? Thanks, Katie. I think there are a lot of questions there and there are a lot of different things that we could say about sort of why things aren't working and and what we need to aim for and that kind of thing but i i guess when you were asking the question i was thinking of one thing that a decision maker might want to do and i think one of the most powerful things we've seen through this project is the ability of the mccs really to bring different teams together and begin to break down those silos like you have said you know um, often people are working alone in a company trying to fix these kind of big human rights problems. They seem really intractable. They don't know what to do about them. They know they need to produce some sort of compelling policies and, and commit to, to really good standards um, because, of course, they want to. But it can be very hard to actually realize those, especially on your own, because to ensure that you are achieving good human rights standards, you need everybody in. You need the ethical team in. You need the legal team in. You need procurement in. You've really got to get everyone together. And I think one of the things we have found most exciting is the ability of these clauses to get everybody sitting down and thinking about what responsibilities lie with each of the different teams to make this happen. Because often the very good intentions of one team may be completely inadvertently undermined by the good intentions of another team. And what is one team's good intention can turn into another team's unfortunate outcome. <laughs> so I think that's one of the things we we really want to uh, to do with this project. And I have to say, from my personal experience, I completely know what you're talking about. And I suspect a few people who are also listening to this might be nodding along vigorously. We all know we've got to work better together, but oh goodness, it's hard. And sometimes you just want to get it done and involving more people. It's just, yeah, it's hard, but it takes time. Sue, Olivia, if somebody wanted to get involved or indeed reach out to you for some support and help, how might they be able to do that? But also, what advice would you have to them in order to kind of get get that support? Well, we are always looking for people that are interested in, in our topic and, um, and want to get involved. Uh, the ACC, the Association of Corporate Counsel, will have at its annual meeting uh, Professor David Snyder, who came up with the idea of creating model contract clauses at their meeting in October. And certainly, if they attend that meeting, they could approach him. There are several places on the American Bar Association website where you can find the model contract clauses and contact information for, I know, uh, myself and David, and I believe Olivia and Sarah at this point as well. 
Not, not sure if Patrick's listed there yet, as he should be. And then there's also just involvement in the business law section, corporate social responsibility law committee, which is one of the committees that is working with the working group on a regular basis now that the clauses are out there to get um, to get the word out. So we're, we're happy for volunteers. We're happy for input. We're happy for criticism, quite frankly. That's one of the things that made version two after the publication of version one as meaningful as it is, was the idea of taking criticism from actually Olivia and Sarah and turning it into a, a better a better model, better model clauses. So please do get involved and uh, reach out and, and uh, we'll return that uh, that solicitation, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this group, as you heard at the beginning, has come together quite organically in some ways. And it's been definitely enriched by people's different perspectives and different experiences. So we are always very happy to kind of bring people into the fold. We'll soon be launching. It's not up yet. And I unfortunately uh, doubt it will be up by the time this podcast goes out. But we will be launching the Responsible Contracting Project website. And that will have so many different ways (laughs) uh, that you can get in touch with us. But in the meantime, as Sue says, our contact information is out there and our LinkedIn and everything else. So if you're interested, if you're in a company and you want to work with us, if you want to contribute, please, please do uh, get in touch with us because we'd be really excited to, to partner and collaborate and think about what we can do together. Oh, thank you both. And uh, if anybody listening, I'll make sure I put the links to those into the words that sit alongside the podcast. And hopefully when that responsible contracting website is up and live, I'll update the word so you'll be able to see it. And a great advice. I love the idea that um, the constructive feedback, criticism, as you call it, Sue, constructive feedback. Um, help reshape the sort of new iteration and and I'm sure as the world continues emerging and evolving that will continue happening so everybody lean in we've got to do this together which leads to my final question to each of you what's next I mean where do you see this going and where does your work take you as part of this Olivia can I reach out to you first what's where's next for you Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll just kind of lead on from my previous comment, which is that we're moving into this slightly bigger uh, phase, which is where we are launching this into the responsible contracting project. And that will have its own sort of self-contained website. It will have information, podcasts, media articles, this kind of thing. And that is really there to support us for the next couple of years with the deeper work with companies, focusing on implementation, focusing on really, really uh, working with companies in quite a deep way. That's buyers, suppliers, also investors, uh, different parties and stakeholders in the supply chain to get this working on the ground and to make sure that it's actually having the impact that we want to see. And as we do that work, we will be looking at thinking about reviewing, improving, integrating feedback and trying to really understand how these are affecting conditions for workers uh, themselves in in the production sites that concern our, um, our collaborations. So that's really what we're going to be doing for the next couple of years. So as again, you know, again, like the uh, previous comment, we do encourage everyone to get involved. Uh, So please do get in touch. And Sue, Patrick, I don't know if you would like to add to that or add anything about your personal ventures for the next couple of years. Well, um, to to um, jump off of your responsible contracting uh, project um, ideas, I certainly hope to continue to be a voice in that uh, development and hope that we're able to actually develop model contract clauses outside of the realm of supply chains. So that would be financing documentation, perhaps loan documentation. There's no end to the number of contracts any lawyer will tell you 
that could use uh, terms and conditions that might relate to human rights protections. In addition, I uh, am chair of the Corporate Social Responsibility uh, Law Committee within the business law section of the ABA and hope that we can encourage through a proposed national action plan for responsible business conduct to include model contract clauses uh, in, again, many different contexts as part of the expectation out of the State Department and similar similar places, whether it's Customs and Borders Protection and the guidance that they provide for importers. There's just no end to where we could be bothersome in a positive way. I like the idea of being bothersome in a positive way. And Patrick, that leaves you to close out the conversation. Where's next for you, sir? Well, personally, it might be a bit more exciting. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, so there's going to be a lot of soccer games and things and taekwondo meets in my immediate future. So I'm looking forward to that. And in the professional context, my main legal work still involves resolving international commercial disputes or domestic commercial disputes with businesses, mainly through arbitration. So I'm still taking on a lot of that work. Some of my clients have been social impact companies, which has been really uh, incredible experience. And I'm also working, you know, helping traditional companies resolve their disputes. So that's a lot of my day to day. But more and more, I find myself spending time advising companies on the regulatory environment with respect to their business and human rights obligations, helping them establish frameworks to implement their obligations within an environment that's feasible given their, their various constraints. I, I'm able to balance the two kind of competing interests uh, relatively well, or at least I hope so. And that's uh, proven very, very helpful. I'm doing, And I'm doing a lot of um, public speaking, uh, things like podcasts, writing articles to just inform the legal community about the evolving regulatory environment so that we can uh, allow companies to get a sense of what their obligations are going to be today, tomorrow, and potentially in a few years. And in the context of doing that, I'm speaking more with leaders from within companies that are wishing to get a better sense of what their obligations are and effectively kind of giving them the tools to to convey to their management what are the constraints that they're operating under and what are some ways that they can implement effective policies to meet their obligations within a business context. So speaking with people has also been very uh, interesting and enlightening for me and hopefully helpful for them as well. But like I said, the personal stuff working with my kids is probably the most fun. Maybe the most fun, but goodness me, the three of you are not going to be bored over the next uh, coming months and years. To Olivia, Sue and Patrick, a massive thank you for sharing your time, but insights and, and so informatively taking us through those important topics today. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 